All right. Hi, pals. Um, so this is Jana from Cabernet and True Crime. I'm coming at you with a podcast. I know it's not my normal style, but I've been meaning to try one out for some time. And uh, I don't know if I got the flu this week or if it's just, you know, springtime in Cleveland. Hard to tell, but I'm looking rough. I'm feeling rough. And I thought no time like the present to try this out on a day that I feel like absolute trash. So, with that being said, we're going to move right on in to what we're going to cover today. Um, I'm going to try to keep this short and sweet. I definitely wanted to make sure I did a podcast this week because I missed last week. Um, And that's just not cool, especially if this is something I really want to do. And I felt kind of bummed, but circumstances came up and it wasn't in the cards last week and then I felt like crap yesterday and there's just not enough time to record a YouTube video and then wait the 700 hours it takes to upload. So we're going to try this this week and see how this goes. Um, so first things, I'd really like to thank um, at rachel.c.alt90 for record or recording for um, bringing this true crime up to me I had asked what was the craziest true crime you've ever heard of and Rachel I'm gonna have to agree this is absolutely up there on the uh, true crime spectrum of insanity so this week we will be covering Daniel LaPlante 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 Daniel LaPlante (laughs) um so let's just dive you know right in So, Daniel was born in 1970 in Townsend, Massachusetts. So, it was apparent that he suffered sexual and psychological abuse at the hands of multiple adults in his life. Um, His father was someone who administered the majority of his son's punishments, and it was something that when when Daniel had been arrested, he had told uh, people that his dad was tormenting him physically emotionally and sexually on a regular basis and I'll have to say that I got all this information sorry credit um shoot I can't remember the website I got it off of but it's one of the first ones when you it's not wikipedia when you look up um Daniel Plant and also from an episode of something on ID I don't remember (laughs) Listen, I have so much DayQuil in my system right now just to keep me going today, and listen, we're going to get through this, but it's going to be a little rough. Okay, so he was born in 1970, sexual, psychological abuse, in rough hands. Um, He struggled academically and socially in school, and he was diagnosed with dyslexia, so that can't help his situation. And um, most of his classmates at school would call him creepy or weird, but it was mostly because he didn't take care of himself. So he was referred to school officials to see a psychiatrist because he was considered super abnormal and he had a complete disregard for his appearance, hygiene, and self-improvement. Meaning he was like that dirty kid in school, that dirty, weird kid who never showered and smelled kind of weird and had like, you know, greasy hair, just paint yourself that picture, um, because I can't show you a picture. Um, if you Google Daniel LaPlante, he is definitely spooky looking, but he's got acne and you could just tell he's unkempt. Like he is not taking care of himself. So he went to therapy 
which you'd think would be, you know, the best thing for um, poor Daniel. But, I mean, it ended up not being great at all. Uh, while in therapy, Daniel was diagnosed with hyperactivity disorder, and um, his psychiatrist took it and, you know, made it even weirder for him and started sexually abusing Daniel during their sessions. So he's going to therapy to kind of sort himself out and then getting sexually abused while there. Um, and, it, you know, it's another hit from a trusted male figure in his life. So, you know, he didn't really have his dad as a male figure anymore. Now he had this therapist that he, he should have trusted and he couldn't. So during this time, um, around the age of 15, he starts breaking into people's homes and he's just stealing their valuables. And it eventually, by the time, you know, by the time he actually hit 15, he wasn't just breaking, like, breaking into people's homes. He was leaving stuff there, too. And he would move stuff around the home um, just so people would know he had been there. But it wasn't enough to be, like, immediately obvious. So that's almost, uh, it feels very a la the original Night Stalker, where he would take one valuable so like if there was a set of diamond earrings he would take one so you couldn't find it you knew it was missing but you didn't know what exactly had happened to it but it was enough to get you like to be suspicious that someone had taken something from you um so he was doing this just to play mind games and that's all it was for so in 1986 Daniel is 16 at this time, and he gets a phone number from a family's address in the area, and it is really likely that he had burgled this home and then retrieved the phone number from it. So, this is the part of Daniel Plant's story that no murder actually comes from it, which, sorry for the spoiler, but it sounds like something out of a straight horror movie. Like, this part of the story sounds like something that you couldn't even you couldn't even write something this scary and it's very 1980s but we'll, we'll I'm sorry I'm digressing so in the home that he gets the phone number of it's a father and his two daughters so the daughter's names are Annie and Jessica Andrews and they're both around the same age as Daniel LaPlante so he begins calling them and talking to them on the phone he told them that he gotten their number from a friend who went to the same school that they did um you know, and they, they had no reason not to believe him. And he had said that he was this good-looking, athletic, blonde, you know, super educated boy who lived in the same area as them. So, you know, Annie and Daniel kind of got acquainted after several phone calls. And, you know, she agreed to go on a date with him. So basically, he's catfishing her. It, you know, the, the OG 1986 catfish where poor little Annie is about to learn, you know... <laughs> a very valuable lesson. So when Daniel arrived for their date, Annie was upset because he wasn't a good-looking jock. He was this disheveled, greasy, dark-haired boy with which she considered to be absolutely non-attractive, which understandable when you're expecting, you know, you got the exact opposite of what you expected. But kudos to Annie because she let him take her on a date. So she didn't just slam the door in her face, his face. He was like su she was super nice about it and she's like, "Okay, take me on this date and they went to the local fair and after an hour she had Daniel take her home so you know what kudos to you Annie you didn't have to do that and it was very kind of her to to do that for him so it was during that date that Daniel had learned a lot about the family so um Annie and her sister had just lost their mother to cancer 
very recently. So it was leaving their dad as their sole caretaker. Um, you know, it seemed in later, in retrospect, sorry, in retrospect, Annie would later claim that it seemed as though LaPlante was obsessed with the death of her mother. Like he, he kept, he was more inquisitive than just a curious first date conversation for, and it seemed like that for a lot of it where he was, he was diving deeper into things that like, you know, you maybe shouldn't ask on a first date to someone you don't really know all that much. Um, but he had asked questions like, how did she feel at the moment her mom died? And such questions as, how much do you think your mom suffered? Which is weird. So, of course, Annie did not willingly see Daniel again after the date. So one evening, as so many teenage girls in the 80s had done, Annie and her sister Jessica attempt to talk to their mother by performing a seance in their basement. Very casual, very casual seance. Later that evening, they heard a rhythmic knocking against their bedroom wall as they slept. And so, you know, <laughs> this is this is the part where it's almost unbelievable until we get to the end and you're like, wow, it's even worse than you thought it was. Um, so they talked to this unseen force as if they were talking to their mom because they had assumed that they, they got a hold of their mom and their mom was talking to them through knocking on the wall. Um, they would ask the spirit questions and then the spirit would return with knocks on the wall. So, you know, you got these girls who just really miss their mom, I'm sure, and they found a way to talk to her and that's awesome. Good for them. Um, except this is way creepier than that. (laughs) So the behavior went on for several evenings, but the knocking was so regular and so disturbing that like the girls couldn't get sleep anymore. And then, um, objects began disappearing from the home. So, the girls would come home and find their furniture moved from one side of the room to the other, their objects were thrown on the ground, and then, at this point, they believed that instead of making contact with their mom, they contacted some awful type of malevolent demon, which, once again, is very 1980s. So, their dad, poor Brian Andrews, um, obviously, he takes the stand of an adult during this situation and is like, uh... No, like, you're, you're crazy, you know, you're not sleeping, your mom just passed away, like, you're, you're stressed out, you're, you're imagining this, which seems like the very sane thing to think and to tell your daughters is happening. So, you know, he really brushes off this whole situation. So, in January of 1987, the girls are sitting in the living room, and they keep hearing this constant tapping on their wall, and it had been so consistent for so long, it was starting to drive them insane. So, they they were really trying to tune it out, but this time, the sound was coming from the basement. So, the girls grabbed a kitchen knife and headed down to the basement, and when they got down there, written in the color of blood on the basement wall was the message... I'm in your room. Come and find me. Horrifying. Could you imagine just the terror they must have felt? And of course, they ran from the home and they asked their neighbor for help. And when their dad got home, he assumed the girls had defaced the basement themselves and made them go to counseling for their grief. Once again, pretty much the same adult thing to do when you've got two what you imagine to be overactive teenagers. Like I said, this whole thing sounds like something out of a 1980s movie, and honestly, I would probably take the side of Brian and be like, 
my teenage daughters are just out of control and they've seen too many scary movies and they're like upset from the death of their mom. I I, I can side with Brian on this. <clears throat> okay. So several weeks later, the girls hear knocking on their walls again, but this time they're coming from Annie's bedroom wall. And when they go into the room, they find the message written again in blood red on the wall. I'm back. Find me if you can. So, of course, they, they run from the house again. And they, they run to their neighbor's house. They use their phone and they call their dad home again. And at first, he blamed the whole ordeal on his teenage daughters and their overactive imagination. He went right to the home to prove there was no one there. And at this point, the girls had been out of the house with the neighbor since they saw the message. Um, but by the time the dad got in, the house was more messed up than what he had, like what the daughters had mentioned to the dad. So when he got into Annie's room, the note, marry me had been scrawled on the wall <laughs> which is just so so romantic just so, absolutely so romantic <laughs> and then on the other side of the room so brian walks into annie's room and sees marry me written on the wall which was not mentioned previously on the other side of the room brian sees a young boy dressed in the clothing of his dead wife with a blonde wig and also wearing her makeup and he was holding a hatchet. And of course, this kid is Daniel. But how freaking weird. Whew, sorry about that. I had a coughing fit and I'm going to have to edit that out. I love this podcast app. Because <laughs> I haven't figured out how to edit YouTube yet. So sorry. Okay, let me paint you the picture again. We see Daniel dressed as the girl's dead mom standing in the bedroom with the note in blood red, marry me. Cool. So Brian tried to grab Daniel on his own, but he got away super quickly. And Brian was, was very confused because he got away so quickly and he had no idea where he went. So the message, the police came, <laughs> he called the police, obviously, because Daniel had gotten away. And they found out the message was written in ketchup, and it's weird. But police found a hidden crawl space behind a cupboard in the wall of Annie's bedroom. And when the officer opened the crawl space, he found Daniel curled up and hiding inside. Daniel was put under arrest, and police discovered that Daniel had been living inside the walls of the home for months. He had tunneled through other areas of the house, creating a handful of peepholes so he could observe Annie. And obviously, police put two and two together that Daniel had been pretending to be the ghost of the girl's dead mother. And the possibility of revealing himself dresses her could have been some weird way to either A, pass himself off as her spirit, which I honestly hope no one would be dumb enough to fall for. <laughs> because, yeah, hearing knocks on your wall is one thing. And having a teenage boy dressed up as a girl is completely different. Um, one, you could pass for a ghost. The other one, you probably really couldn't. Um, but a lot of people, though, agree that most... The girls were lucky that night as um, everybody believed that he was ready to use that hatchet if the girls had not believed they were his ghost. The ghost of their mom. He was a ghost. Not a ghost. You know what I'm saying. You get... <laughs> you guys get it. You understand. So, after this whole ordeal, Daniel was placed in, um, juvie until October of 1987. So, right after his release, he went right back to burgling, 
and at some point along the way obtained two handguns from a neighbor's home. So there's actually police records you can read it. If There's actually the whole case is um, the court documents are available if you ever wanted to read them. I read them. Quite interesting. People trying to say this weird boy and trying to describe him in a way that's not offensive is quite fun. So on December 1st, 1987, Daniel broke into the home of the Gustafson family, which lived about half a mile from his own house. He was greeted by a very pregnant Priscilla Gustafson and her two young children, seven-year-old Abigail and five-year-old William. So later we'll find out that it was only Priscilla and one of the children home, and the other child arrived home later. So um, Priscilla was 33, and I don't remember if I said her, yeah, seven-year-old Abigail and five-year-old William. Just painting you a picture here. Priscilla's husband, Andrew, was at work during this event. So he came home to find Priscilla lying face down on their bed. She had been raped and then shot multiple times in the head at point-blank range. He called the police, who, thank goodness, they found them. The children drowned in two different bathtubs. So William was upstairs and Abigail was downstairs. They were found face down in the tubs. Um... It was believed that Priscilla and William were killed first and were dead by the time that Abigail got home. I think, if I remember correctly, Priscilla and William were at um, a church fundraiser and Abigail was at a friend's house. That may be wrong, but she wasn't with them when they died. She died separately. Um, from the murder, it seems as if Daniel wasn't capable of handling it. He had used restraints and robbed them at gunpoint, but it appeared he killed Priscilla first to eliminate the biggest threat. Um, they found several ligatures at the scene, um, and socks dampened with saliva, a necktie, socks, stockings, pantyhose, and, you know, he had really tied them up and even had time to enjoy some beer apparently, because the police found a nearly full bottle of beer that had apparently been taking for, taken from their refrigerator. So, at that time, but I mean, obviously by the time that Andrew came home, which was 5.30 on Tuesday, Daniel was long gone, and actually at that time he was at a six-year-old niece's birthday party. So, police questioned him the next day on Wednesday, but they didn't have enough evidence against him yet. And so by the time they went back to get him, which was the same day on Wednesday, Daniel had jumped off the porch and fled. So a few towns over from Townsend, which was Littleton, he broke into a woman's home and kidnapped her in her vehicle. The woman escaped, but Daniel was still recognized by someone who had seen his photo in the news, which, once again, if you ever look up his photo, he is just quite particular you would see this guy and definitely know it was him it was very much like a Richard Ramirez type thing where like this guy had so many very specific characteristics that you're like that's obviously the dude um so he was discovered hiding in a dumpster 48 hours after the manhunt began he was inspected and a hair belonging to Abigail was on his sock and he was arrested and convicted um, one year later, he was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences for the murder of the Gustafson family, 
And actually, in 2017, he has to be resentenced on the basis that he was a juvenile at the time of the crimes. Um, but the judge ruled he had to wait 15 more years before becoming eligible for parole. So he'll be in jail for quite some time. I don't see him getting resentenced or getting out of prison anytime soon because he was clearly messed up. And yeah, that's <laughs> that's the end of that story. Um I am going to upload this and then go to bed. Hopefully, I'm, well, I'm going to switch to NyQuil after this. So, um, thank you for listening to my first podcast experience. Sorry it was short. Um, thank you at rachel.c.alt90 for recommending this. This was a doozy to research. Um, I'm quite happy that I took the time to look this story up. And if you don't follow Cabernet and True Crime on Instagram, go for it. I have a YouTube as well. And I'm just kind of all over the place. Hopefully, in the next couple weeks, I'll wrangle this all together and have something cohesive for you guys. Um, but until then, I'm going to keep on, keep it on. And uh, happy True Crime Tuesday. <laughs>